You're listening to sermons from South Point Fellowship, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpointfellowship.org. We're in Judges chapter 10 this morning. If you would open your Bibles there. We're going to look at a man who um, had a, a unique life. He lived out of a sense of brokenness and inadequacy. I don't know if you've ever felt inadequate before or if you've ever felt the sense of your brokenness accentuated or if you've ever felt like you didn't measure up or you just weren't good enough or people looked down on you. don't know if you've ever been through anything like that. I can tell you that I have and it's not a good feeling. There are things that happen in our life that shape our life. There are things that happen in our life that damage our life, that make us feel inadequate, and we find ourselves going into situations where we need to measure up. I remember a few weeks back I went to preach a funeral, and I forgot part of my clothes at home, so I rushed over to a place to buy some clothes, and the only thing I could find on the super sale rack was a jacket that looked pretty good if I had weighed about 25 less pounds. But I bought it anyway. So I pulled on these jeans that I've got on now, and I put on that jacket with a sweater that was too thick that made me look b- bigger than I needed to look, and I had to go to a funeral and play a guitar and sing. And uh, I can play a guitar if you want a good Jim Croce song or, or something like that, but when spiritual songs, I'm not that good on them. I didn't grow up playing them. And, and I sang, and the wind was blowing, and then I realized I was surrounded by people with tons of money, people that had really important jobs, not like a preacher. And then I had to preach the funeral with some Presbyterian guy who had the audacity to wear a robe out to the graveyard. I don't know why he had that robe on, but it sure looked a whole lot better than my jeans and my jacket and made me feel really inadequate. And I left there, and it took me three days to get over my experience at the graveyard because of that sense of inadequacy. If you're here today and you struggle with a sense of inadequacy, it shapes your life in ways that you don't realize. We're going to look at Jephthah today, and there were some things that happened early in his life that caused him to have this sense of, I'm not good enough. I need to measure up. And as we read the story What we're going to see is how that shaped him once he got into leadership. Because once he got into leadership, he felt like he had to prove to everybody else that he already thought was better than him that he had to do some extreme things to fit in. He made some really crazy vows, and he wanted people to say, you're amazing, dude. You are super spiritual. I don't know why we uh, misjudged you. And it all backfired on him. And so we're in Judges 10, and I want to begin reading in verse 6. And we're going to look at the condition of the people before they cried out to God to, uh, to be delivered even once again. And, and as we read the text, here's what I want you to think about. Gracious deliverance should pr- produce humble devotion inside and out. Listen, listen carefully. Gracious deliverance should produce humble devotion inside and out. But listen to this. When we are graciously delivered by Almighty God and His deliverance of us doesn't produce humility and devotion, it will produce spiritual pride. It will produce spiritual 
pride. Think about that as we read through the text this morning. The first thing I want you to see from the text is the incessant enemy. There is an incessant enemy. There is a relentless enemy that wants you and wants me and wanted these people. And if we're honest, we struggle with this relentless, this incessant enemy. Look at verse 6. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the, the Baals or the Baals as I call them down in the south here and the Ashtoreth. The, the, notice this. We go further. Plural. It doesn't say God. It says gods. They're serving, they're serving the Baals and the Ashtoreth, but they're also serving the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines. Now, it's one thing to serve other gods, but you don't understand how that impacts your relationship with the God. Notice what it says. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. You can't serve God and idols. You can't serve the God of the Bible and pagan gods at the same time. So, consequently, as a result of their action, God responded. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hands, into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. Now, notice what's happening here. They want to serve the God of the Philistines. They want to serve the God of the Ammonites. They want to serve the pagan gods. They want to serve the idols. And then God said, you want to serve those idols? I will, I will sell you into the hands of those idols so that you can go headlong and, and serve them all you want to. But once they, they gave themselves to their idols, their idols destroyed them. You and I were created to serve one God. You and I were not created to serve the gods of the pagans. You and I were not created to serve the, the gods of Baal. We were not created to serve the, all of the polytheistic paganism and idolatry that surrounds us in the culture that we live in today. We were created to serve the one true God as revealed in Scripture. And when we serve any other God, no matter how enticing, no matter how magnetic, no matter how glorious, no matter how, no matter how freeing that lie may come to our ears and we may respond to it once, we are sold out to our idols. They will always strip us of anything that is meaningful. And that's where they found themselves. Notice the words that he used, verse 8, and they crushed and depressed the people of Israel that year. Anytime you're serving anything as a God that's not God, it will crush you and oppress you. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. In other words, this crushing by these uh, idolatrous gods or these idol worshipers was universal. It got everybody in Israel. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim so that Israel was severely distressed. There is, there is, an, incessant, there is an incessant enemy that's chasing you, that's chasing me, that wants to destroy us. And we cannot afford to let our guard down for a single minute. He's always at his task. He never takes a break. He never takes a vacation. He never takes a holiday. He's always after us. We live in a world uh, that we coexist with this incessant enemy. Verse 10, And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. Verse 11, And the Lord said to the people of Israel, 
Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Monites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand? You, yet you have forsaken. So God's already delivered them once and twice and three times. He's already delivered them multiple times. And you're, you're crying out to me again because you're serving these gods? Haven't we already been through this? I don't know about you, but me and God go through that all the time. Right? Don't, don't let anybody trick you into thinking that, that every step of their spiritual life is an upward progression. It's a struggle. We're, we're, we're more like Israel. We struggle. We'll, we'll start serving God, and he doesn't have all the bells and whistles. He doesn't, he doesn't we don't think, shine up like the idols do. The idols will promise a lie and we'll turn from the truth of God and turn to the idol. And so yet again, yet again, over and over again, I, I, I'm, I've been around for six decades and, and I've found that my spiritual life is more like three steps forward and two steps back. And that's where they were. And God has a plan and God's working his plan and God is going to accomplish his purposes. But between here and there, it's going to be a struggle and we're going to find ourselves. If, if Satan were not uh, such a skillful foe, if he were not real, and if the rewards that we are pursuing in Christ were not real, there would not be a battle. And those who say they are not battling have already given themselves into their idolatry to serve their idols. If you're not battling, you're not a child of God. But if you're a child of God, I promise you today, you probably find yourself in the midst of a struggle. And you're somewhere between singing the songs we sang this morning with all your heart and sitting here today feeling like that you're unworthy to sing these songs. Thank, thank, thank God he continues to pursue us. He is a God of grace. Verse 13, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods, therefore I will save you no more. <laughs> this is cool. Verse 14, go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. You want to serve these gods? Why don't you cry out to them? You're oppressed. Cry out to your idols. See what they'll do for you. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. Israel basically is saying, We have sinned. We are really sorry for sinning. Would you please change our circumstances? Would you please change our circumstances? Would you just please make things better? So they put away the foreign gods. Here we go now. We see the beginning of the process of repentance. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Verse 17, Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead, and the people of Israel came together, and they encamped in Mizpah. So here the Lord now is beginning to work among his people. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said one to another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. <laughs> they didn't know what God's plan was. The very one that Gilead had rejected would be their king. The very one that Israel rejected would be their Savior, would be their Deliverer, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 says, He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. He came unto His own people, Israel, and they rejected Him. But He was their Savior. 
Jephthah has been rejected. And Gilead has said, be, be out of here, you son of a prostitute. We'll see that in a minute. But now God's plan is to bring the very one back who was rejected to be the deliverer of his people. Let me just talk to you for a second about the incessant enemy before we move on to chapter 11. There is the enemy without. There is the enemy around us, and that is the paganism and the idolatry of our culture. But secondly, there is the enemy that is within us. There are the idols that are in our heart. Those are the things that control us. Think about idolatry for a minute because all of us are struggling with idols around us and all of us are struggling with idols within us. All of us are struggling with the influences of the culture, society around us. All, all of us can turn on the TV and we can watch a program and we see the, the values of the idolatrous culture constantly appealing to our soul, either through some product that they're trying to sell or, or through some philosophy that says life is all about you, that hope is not found in God, that God is not reasonable, but everything else that's going on around us is completely reasonable. And the world has been turned upside down and there are a ton of people that are believing it. They're drinking the Kool-Aid. Those are the idols that are without, but there are the idols that are within. There is the sin that we love. There is the sin that we cannot imagine living without. There is the sin of the idol of pleasure. We love our pleasure. There is the idol of success. There is the idol of money. There is the idol of materialism. And oh, the Lord have mercy. Would, would two things happen? Would Lord, would you bring revival? And would you please bring somebody back into the White House that is a capitalist? Right? Because, because if, if, if everything would just go better in the world, I could continue on with my plan for a condo on the beach in retirement and everything would be well. Right? Because we've got these idols in our hearts and we want everything in the world to go well so that we can continue to serve the idols of success and power and pleasure. We don't want God changing our heart. That's where Israel was as we read this text. Let me, let me, let me say a few things by way of application as it relates to the impact of idolatry. When we worship idols, we don't own them. They own us. The lie of sin is that sin is freedom and that God is bondage. And if you could just get away from God and his bondage and you could enjoy your sin without any guilt, without anybody standing in a pulpit somewhere telling you that you are in sin, if we could just somehow get away from that, then you would have freedom. But the truth of the matter is, is that, that when we worship idols, we don't own them. They own us. They have been sold, the text says. And the new owner that God sells us to has the right to do anything that he desires to do with us. And I would ask you, who owns you this morning? Who owns you this morning? You may be like, man, I just came here because somebody invited me and I can't wait to get out of here. And I don't want anybody trying to tell me. I don't want anybody preaching at me. Don't you preach at me, right? We tell people that. Somebody speaking to you with authority saying there are some things that are right, there are some things that are wrong, there are some things that are sin, there are some things that are righteousness. There is only one way to heaven. Oh, how, how judgmental can you be? And that is through Christ and Christ alone. No, there are many ways to heaven. We've discovered new things that people haven't known about for thousands of years now. We don't want to hear that. We want our idols. The psychological effect of idolatry is this, that idolatry enslaves. And what it enslaves us to is dissatisfaction with itself. Think about it. 
What idolatry enslaves you to is dissatisfaction with itself and a warped, unsatisfied craving for more of the idol. Did you hear that? Idolatry enslaves us to itself and then it creates a dissatisfaction with itself so that I can never get enough satisfaction out of the idol so that I will always be connected and bound to and worship the idol out of the hope that it on some level can bring satisfaction, but it never does. I've always got to have more. How much more money? One more dollar? How much more pleasure? One more day? How, how much more sexual addiction? One more frame? How much more? Just a little bit more. And then I say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to discontinue my relationship with my idols. But the craving is still there. It's, it's the enemy within. Ultimately, idolatry in the text cost us our relationship with God. Israel initially wanted to compromise with God. Our desire is for relief, not repentance, they said. Our desire is for temporary circumstantial solutions, not permanent spiritual solutions. And, and, and until we deal with the idolatry within us, it will only make us angry and proud when we deal with the idolatry that's around us. Some of the angriest people in the world are those that are angry at the idols out there because they will not deal with the idols that are in here. That's what was happening with Israel. But we know the text tells us that gracious deliverance should produce humble devotion inside and out, and when it doesn't, spiritual pride takes over. We live, listen, we live on a circumstantial level, ladies and gentlemen. When we come to church and we say we're spiritual people, we're, we're existing predominantly on a circumstantial level. And what God is saying to Israel is they're trying to say, God, change our circumstances. God says, I'm not changing your circumstances. I'm not getting you out of that because what God wants from us is wholehearted devotion. We want to say, Lord, if you'll get me out of this mess, I'll just manage my sin a little better. God has no interest in being a facilitator or a participant in our idolatry. And when we invite him into that transaction, he sees it for what it is and tells us to let our idols that we chose over him save us. And that's what he's saying to him. He, saying to him. He's like, I'm not participating in that junk. We're praying and we're praying and we're praying, but we never repent. We're praying and we're praying and we're praying. God, would you change this? But we never turn from our idolatry. We just rename it. We just give it a new title. God's like, I'm not, I'm not having anything to do with that. We can never expect to think clearly about God or ourselves when we are surrounded by and filled with idolatry. When our relationship with God is hopefully synthesized with a faulty worldview, it could end up destroying the ones that we love the most. And so I would ask you, what idols are you clinging to this morning? What idols are you clinging to? What idols dominate your interior world? What idols are you giving your heart to this morning? And I would ask you today, would you this morning come clean with yourself and with, with God? Some of you have come in, in, into this room this morning absolutely and completely exhausted. Your idols have worn you out. They have beaten you up. You are oppressed. You are crushed. You are tired. And the good news of Jesus Christ is this. There's something better than your idols that won't take life but give life, that won't drain you but nourish you and nurture you. And that is 
none other than Jesus Christ himself. And so I'm calling you this morning to turn from your idols and turn to Christ. That is the incessant enemy. But the second thing I want you to see from the text is the incomplete victory. Because we're going to see that Jephthah is a great leader, is, I believe, a highly intelligent man, a great debater, a great theological thinker, a great historical thinker. Um, who, who can take someone else's arguments and turn them on their head and put them back on themselves. And he won the argument and he won the war. But think about how Jephthah approaches everybody that he comes in contact with and he's always a step ahead of every one of them. He's outthought them. He's already considered the circumstance before he gets there. Verse, verse 1 of chapter 11. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. He was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him son. So here's, here's the story. Jephthah's dad is Gilead. Gilead had a relationship with a prostitute. Jephthah was the product of the relationship with a the prostitute. Then Gilead, Jephthah's dad, also married another woman um, legitimately, and then this woman had children. That's what the text is talking about. And Gilead's wife, verse 2, um, also bore him sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So here's Jephthah. Jephthah didn't do anything. He hadn't done anything. He didn't say anything. He was just born to the wrong woman. He had nothing to do with his conception. He had nothing to do with his birth. He had nothing to do with where he was born. But all of a sudden, his brothers... I don't know if they were concerned about dividing the inheritance or just in their culture took opportunity to reject one who didn't have the same heritage and lineage and pedigree that they did. All of a sudden now they're saying, and probably at a very young age, saying, get out of here. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. So here's Jephthah rejected by his family, has great leadership gifts, is surrounded by worthless men, and Jephthah becomes the godfather. Jephthah becomes the gang leader. Jephthah becomes the man, a powerful man. Verse 4, we go back to Israel. We got, this, we got this insight. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel, and when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went up to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. Notice what's happening here. The Israelites have this pattern. They're doing to Jephthah what they tried to do to God. We don't really accept you. We don't really like you. We don't like your lifestyle. We would prefer somebody with an Ivy League education, perhaps somebody that has been to the war college, but we'll take a godfather. We'll take a pirate. We'll take a criminal. We'll take an outlaw if you can help change our circumstances. He read right through it, by the way. Remember they were saying in chapter 10, hey, God, would you come change our circumstances? And he, God's like, no, I'm not changing your circumstances. I don't want anything to do with your circumstances. I want your hearts. Jephthah does the same thing. Verse 7, but Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? What are you doing? What are you doing coming up here kissing up to me? I know you hate me. I know you can't stand me. I know you despise me. I know you, you look at me and you say, ah, there's the son of the prostitute. Now, when you woke up, you're like, hey, Jephthah, what's up, bro? Oh, man, you're a great warrior. Hey, did you hear Jephthah's story? You want to know where he came? You, you, hey, 
Have you ever seen, let me, you, you want to see a picture of his mom? What a piece of trash. Oh, Jephthah, what's up, man? Right? So, so, so he understands what they're doing. They're trashing him behind his back. They really don't want a relationship with him. All they want to do is use him. That's the way we are with God. We just want to use him. Hey, would you come fight my, my battles for me? Would you, come, would you come make things better for me? Notice what, he, notice what happens. He said, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. I will be your Lord. I will be your king. I will be in charge of you. You will submit to me. That's only reasonable, ladies and gentlemen. That's only reasonable. Jesus Christ is who? Jesus Christ is king. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is owner. Jesus Christ is Master, would you look at the titles that are given to him in Scripture? But all of a sudden, all we want to say is he's my Savior and he just saved me from my sin, but he's not going to be Lord over my life. He's not going to rule over my life. I don't have to listen to anything he says. Everybody understands that except those of us who have a warped view of the grace of God. Everybody understands that. Even crooked Jephthah understood that. If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Now the battle is beginning. Verse 12. Notice, notice what Jephthah does. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, what do you have against me that you have come to, to me to fight against my land. <laughs> he laid the argument out beautifully. Then the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, because Israel on coming up from Egypt took away my land from the Ammon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore it peaceably. So something happened in the Exodus where, Israel, where, Egypt, where the Israelites came through after leading Egypt and there were these debates over which land Israel could pass through, which direction they could go to get to the ultimate destination that God called them to. We can read about that um, in, in, in the Pentateuch. Verse 14, Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or, or, or the land of the Ammonites, but when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness, and he's giving them a history lesson now. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went through the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived at the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side, uh, the, the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon, and Israel said to him, Please let us pass through 
your land to our country. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and he camped at Jahaz and fought against Israel. Look at verse 21. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel and defeated them. So Israel took possession of the land of the Ammonites who inhabited that country, and they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok, and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. Everybody's trying to figure out what's going on in the Middle East. Let me tell you what's going on in the Middle East. Let me tell you what's going on in Israel. God dispossessed those people of their land, but they're still fighting for their land. They want their land back. They want Israel to give them their land back. But the God who was over everything said, this is your land. We, we, we miss that. God said that. God can say anything he wants to say. God can do anything he wants to do. God can take anything that he wants to take from me and give it to somebody else. It's his to start with. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people and, and are you to take possession of them? Will you now possess what Chemosh your God gives you to possess? And all that the Lord, the God, had dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now... Are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? He's, he's referencing now something that happened 300 years previous. He's referencing a historical precedent that he's using to, to build his argument. Did he ever concede against Israel or did he ever go to war with them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages and in the Aor, it was and its villages and in all the cities that are that are on the banks of the Arnon 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong in making war on me. The Lord the judge decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites, Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah, and he sent to him, that he sent to them. Verse 29, Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to, the, uh, on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, and we'll come back to this in a minute, and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. And I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them from Aor to the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 cities as far as Abel, Karaman, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Here's what we've seen in the text. Let me break it down for you. Number one, we see uh, the deliverer. It's Jephthah, um, the gang leader. We see the demand. If I'm going to deliver you, you are going to submit to me. You're going to surrender to the one who saves. You, you cannot repent of your sin unless you acknowledge the, the right of Jesus Christ to rule your life. Thirdly, we see the debate. He debates him on several levels. He debates him first historically. A master historian. This dude is no lightweight intellectually. Secondly, he debates him theologically. This is what God has done. Thirdly, he debates him on precedent. We already mentioned that with these 300 years uh, or, or the, this thing that happened with 
the, the prophet previously. Fourthly, he debates him on silence. Nothing has happened for 300 years. Why is there a problem now? And Jephthah, on a rational level, on a spiritual level, on a historical level, on a biblical level, absolutely wins the debate, and the debate is over. And the Ammonites said, we don't listen to anything you say. We don't care what the truth is. We're going to fight you. We want our land. And they were absolutely defeated. Why do you call it an incomplete victory? I call it an incomplete victory because if you go to chapter 12 and verse number 7, notice what it says. It says, Jephthah judged Israel six years, then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city Gilead. Victory is always incomplete when those who save us die. When those who deliver us are bound by the greatest enemy that we would ever face. Victory is always incomplete. Human earthly leaders can never provide ultimate victory for us. If you will, look at the next verses. And after him, Isbon. We know that Isbon died, verse 10, and was buried in Bethlehem. After him, Elon. And Elon, the Zebulonite, died and was buried. And after him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite died and was buried. All of these leaders died. They could not provide ultimate victory. These victories are only temporary victories. These victories are incomplete victories because the deliverer died. But I'm telling you, they were looking forward to a deliverer who was coming who would die, but when he died, he would pay for all of the sins of all who would believe. It would be a sufficient death that would redeem humanity from their sin. And to prove that his victory was worthy and complete and that sin was fully defeated, Jesus Christ, our Lord, rose from the grave. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He will not face or see death. He has defeated it, and victory is only found in him. But this text is pointing us to Christ who will win the ultimate victory through his life of righteousness, through his all-sufficient death, and through his resurrection from the grave. If you put your hope in an earthly leader, I promise you, you will be disappointed. They cannot ultimately deliver. But I would challenge you this morning to put your hope in Christ, and Christ alone. Christ ultimately saves. The third thing we see in the text, beginning in, we saw a little bit of it in verse 29, we see this vow, but beginning in verse 34 of chapter 11 is, uh, is uh, two things. We see, we see the point three is this, the inevitable tragedy. So we've seen the incessant enemy. Secondly, we've seen the incomplete victory. Thirdly, we see the inevitable tragedy, beginning in verse number 29 of chapter 11, if you will. Um, we've already read through that. He made this vow, but look at verse 34. And forgive me, my nose is running, and I can either let it run down my lip and get in my mouth, or I can wipe it on my sleeve, all right? And I should have taken an antihistamine before I got up here, but something about standing up to preach makes my nose run, and when I get through preaching, my nose will stop running. All right, so please forgive me. Um, look at verse 34. Jephthah made a vow, right? Notice what happens. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with the tambourines and with dances. She was his only child besides her, and he had neither son or daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble for me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. 
She says to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies. And so the story goes on to tell us that Jephthah ended up literally sacrificing his daughter. Now, uh, folks, let's come to grips with some things. Um, scripture never affirms or encourages human sacrifice. Let us, let us go there. This is not right, number one. Number two, God never told Jephthah to make a vow. The Spirit was on him. The Spirit led him to experience great victory, but the Spirit of God never led him to, take, to make a vow. And we could get into all kinds of things about vows, but we're not going to do that this morning. I want to I try to break it down. Um, but before we look at that, I want you to go fast forward over to chapter 12, and there is this conflict with Ephraim. And, and notice this, verse 1. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zephron and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call on us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I, my people, had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites. And the Lord gave them into my hand when they have, when they have come, when, when you come up to me this day to fight against me. Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the, the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me go over, the men of Gilead said to them, are you an Ephraimite? And when they said no, they said to him, then say, Shibboleth. And he said, Shibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right because he was an Ephraimite. The Ephraimites had a dialect. They had an accent. There were certain things they couldn't say. Some people say crick and some people say creek, right? Depending on where you're from. You can identify where somebody's from a lot of times because of their accent. So they said, their accent's going to give them away. We're going to kill them. So here goes this vow, but here goes these people that were like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You've won a great, great victory, and I looked at the credits, and we didn't get any. Where's our credit? We're going to kill you. We're going to kill you for not, and this is post-victory. Where is our credit? Where is our glory? All of the glory is going to you, Jephthah. What about our glory? Let me try to wrap up with uh, just a couple of thoughts um, this morning the, the, as we look at the inevitable tragedy. Tragedy number one is the tragedy of spiritual arrogance. The tragedy of spiritual arrogance. Listen carefully. I'll talk fast. Jephthah said, I will make a great, impressive sacrifice for God. And when I do, I'll be super spiritual. I'll be super righteous. And everybody will look at me and say, oh, what a spiritual man Jephthah is. Why? Because he, in his heart, said, I'm a piece of trash. I'm so unworthy. I've got to do something so that when these people look at me, they won't think. Prostitutes, son, unworthy, gangster, godfather, outlaw. No, I want them to say, oh, what a man of God. Oh, what a worthy leader. 
They couldn't say that. Jephthah said, i got to prove it to them that I am a great man. I want to be seen as a great warrior. I want to be seen as a deeply spiritual man. I want to completely change how the world sees me. Instead of God using my brokenness to bring great glory to himself, I want to bring great glory to himself through my self-righteousness. We see the tragedy of spiritual arrogance and theological ignorance. God never asked him to make a vow. God never asked him to participate in human sacrifice. I believe that the influence of of paganism and human pride told him. I believe that messed up theology that we get from the beginning where there are all of these gods, all of these influences coming from the outside in impacted his view of God. For Jephthah, the victory over the human enemy was not enough but he could not defeat the demons within. So he wanted the voices inside of him to stop accusing him and telling him that he's worthless. He wanted the voices inside of him to say, you're okay, Jephthah, you have worth and value. So he said, I'm going to do something profoundly and amazingly spiritual. Listen carefully. Listen carefully. Because folks, the older I get, here's, here's what I want to tell you. I think a lot of things, and I think I think a lot of things. And I believe a lot of things, and I think I believe I believe a lot of things. So there are things that I think, and there are things that I think that I think, and there are things that I believe, and there are things that I think that I believe, but there are very few things that I know. And a lot of people that sit here this morning, you grabbed a hold to, you put a hook in, you sewed yourself, connected yourself at the hip to a theological thought, and because that theological thought now dominates your brain, that that controls your perception of God and your perception of yourself. And then we go do dumb things based on bad theology because that's just what we think or that's just what we believe. All of our debates are theological debates about something that we say we believe. Much of what we believe is a product of bad theology and faulty reasoning. We can't can't crucify Jephthah because of his terrible actions that are rooted in poor theology because we are guilty of the same actions that are rooted in the same theology. Much of what we believe is a product of bad theology and faulty reasoning. Not a clear understanding of the character and nature of God is revealed in Scripture. Let me just share some thoughts as it relates to this concept. Number one, we cannot save ourselves or contribute to our salvation. God alone saves completely. Jephthah's like, I'll tell you what, I want a great victory, but I'm going to really show these people how spiritual I am, and I'm going to prove that I am worthy to be their leader. I'm going to prove my worth by my self-righteousness. We cannot save ourselves or contribute to our salvation. God alone saves completely, but here he is dragging a vow into it. When the victory was the Lord, the Spirit came and filled him. God gave them a great victory. God raised him up as a leader. God God created these circumstances that he found himself in that made him the perfect leader for Israel at this particular time. But all of a sudden now, he's going to take spiritual matters into his own hands and he's going to make a contribution to his own spirituality, his own righteousness, his own salvation. We cannot save ourselves or contribute to our salvation. God alone completely saves. Our flesh wants at least some credit for our salvation, but rest assured there is no credit for salvation to be had. Apart from God, every single one of us would drown in our idolatry. 
And unless and until God moves toward us to deliver us, we cannot be saved no matter how many vows we make. The point of salvation is the glory of God. And any competition with his glory is bad news for you and me. God and God alone save. Secondly, beware of the subtleness of self-righteousness. Beware of the subtleness of self-righteousness. We on our best day are looking for some angle to prove our spiritual superiority and generate a little or a lot of self-glory. Listen to your conversations. Listen to me carefully. When you find your mouth being opened up to be a critic of somebody else, you're trying to exalt yourself and put somebody else down. You hear me? When you gossip, you know what you're doing? You're trying to exalt yourself and put somebody else down. And you know who you're complaining about? You're complaining against God. You're complaining against God. But we find that happening all the time. We, we on our best day, the most spiritual day, are looking for some angle to prove our spiritual authority and generate a little or a lot of self-glory. The pathway to our greatest sin begins when, with our desire to be perceived as spiritual. The pathway to our greatest sin is our desire to be perceived as spiritual. Ah, let me just tell you how spiritual I am. Let me tell you what I've been reading. Let me tell you what I know about the Bible. Is there anything wrong with reading stuff? Is there anything wrong with knowing about the Bible? But I, No, there's not. But dear friend, let me, let me be very specific and tell you that if you think you're better than somebody else or you think you're more spiritual than somebody else because you listen to somebody on a podcast or because you read more books than somebody else or you know more of the Bible than somebody else, Lord, have mercy. Give me a room full of, of new Christians. Give me a room full of baby Christians that are hungry. instead of folks that you just can't be good enough for, right? We, we just conglomerate in our groups of mature Christians and argue and debate and push people down so we can step up on top of them so that we can just feel really spiritual. This dude got himself in so much trouble because he wanted people to think that he was some spiritual giant. Beware of the subtleness of self-righteousness. Thirdly, trying to prove our spiritual... Spirituality and significance at the expense of others is always a losing proposition. Trying to prove our spirituality and significance at the expense of others is always a losing proposition. Spiritual pride is dangerous and deadly. It, 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 it is always moving us to see ourselves as superior and our opponents as inferior and leads us to develop a, a theology that justifies both. Why in the world didn't the guy sacrifice himself? Why did he sacrifice his daughter? Because he made a vow. And a spiritual man, when he makes a vow, keeps a vow. It was a dumb vow. God didn't expect him to keep the vow. Self-righteousness is deadly. Self-righteousness is obvious. Self-righteousness is pungent. Our worst day as a Christian is not when we succumb to idolatry, but when we are oblivious to self-righteousness. We're like, oh, look at those idols. Look at those idolaters. Look at those pagans. Look at these terrible people out here. All the while, our hearts are filled with self-righteousness. Our, our, our worst day as a Christian is not when we succumb to idolatry, but when we are oblivious to our self-righteousness. And then we see finally with Ephraim the, the tragedy, not, not only of spiritual arrogance, but the tragedy of spiritual significance. 
A great victory had been won for everybody. <laughs> Folks, a great victory has been won. Our Savior died on the cross. Everybody in this room that trusts in Christ has experienced a great victory. A great victory has been won. A great victory has been won. There is good news. A great victory has been won. Be careful the next time you say, I know a great victory has been won, but what about me? What about me? Nobody thanked me. Nobody recognized me. Nobody told me how great I am. Nobody asked me to pray. Nobody asked me to teach class. Nobody asked me to lead a life group. Right? A great victory has been won for all of us. And it, and, and it is our desire for spiritual significance that destroys the sweetness of the victory that Christ has wrought through his death and through his burial and through his resurrection. And when we trust him, we exalt and celebrate a brother. Well, he's not as spiritual as me. Well, he's not as good as me. I think most of us presume our inherent and spiritual significance. And the fact, listen, and the fact that we feel marginalized or on the outside is because we think that we deserve something that someone has failed to give us. I deserve to be listened to. I deserve to be in leadership. I deserve all of these things. All because of my perception of myself. And we can't even celebrate the great victory that we've won. So an unnecessary battle ensues. There is this divvying up of the credit that is disputed. And brother schemes against brother and strategizes against brother. All to the detriment of the good news of Jesus Christ. Mark it down. When men debate and jockey about who is the most significant, rest assured that it is a direct result of our failure to recognize the significance of God and his great victory that is ours if we rest in Gracious deliverance should produce humble devotion inside and out. <laughs> this room ought to be filled, if you're a believer, ought to be filled with people who are consumed with humble devotion. Gracious deliverance should produce humble devotion inside and out. And when it doesn't, spiritual pride takes over in what could be the most beautiful place in Locust Grove ends up being worse than the odors that come from the septic tank. And we call it church because we fail to recognize the goodness of God and the grace of God. And we miss out on the great spiritual victory that is ours. These people missed out on a great victory and we too miss out on a great victory in our lives and in our hearts. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, I would invite you to surrender your life to him, hope in him, hope in his death, burial, and resurrection, and hope in his soon return. Every week at South Point, we, we have juice and we have a wafer, and they represent the blood of Christ. And Jesus said, I want you to take the juice and I want you to take the wafer and I want you to remember, remember me 
I need to remember Jesus because I need to forget me. I need to forget me. I need to forget that I am inadequate. But my identity is not in my past. My identity is in my Savior, right? So I don't have to live in my past. I don't have to live in my sin. What I'm living in is who I am in Christ. So when we take this, we recognize that while we are wholly inadequate, that Jesus Christ is completely inadequate to pay for our sin and to make us right with God the Father. Imagine going up to the Father's house and sitting down with Him and feeling so welcome and feeling so loved. We should remember that. Is there anything between you and Him as you partake in this this morning? And I would encourage you to confess that and to repent of that. Those idols will destroy you. They will wear you out. They will wring the life out of you. But Christ gives life. And so we come because we're aware of the life that He gives and we celebrate that this morning. And that's why Jesus said, remember me. He said, take and eat. This is my body. And he said, drink ye all of it. Let's pray together. Lord, we would ask you to speak to our hearts this morning. We would ask you to have mercy on us. Challenge us in the realm of our self-righteousness if we say we're believers in the realm of our spiritual arrogance and Lord challenge us in the realm of our spiritual significance I pray if there's one here that has never experienced the victory that you would save them this morning that they would call on your name and that they would know that victory and I pray Lord if there are those here that say they've experienced that victory. I pray we'd live in that victory. I pray that victory would be the loudest thing we say. The dominant thing that we think. And the force, the motive behind us that drives how we live. Lord, how this city needs a church that will live in the victory this hour is in Christ. Let that, let that be us. Lord God, in Jesus' name I pray.